Welcome to Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church. This is the eighth episode in our series examining the impact that Christianity has had on history and culture. Today, we're going to take a look at the influence the faith has had on labor and work. Historians of the traditional school laud Greco-Roman civilization for what it bequeathed the modern world in terms of politics and philosophy. But in the classical world, polyphy was done by the elite, that is, the wealthy and powerful 1%, who had the leisure time to engage exclusively in the intellectual pursuits. What gets glossed over in this era is the low regard that was paid manual labor and those classes of society that did it. You could make a good case that it was the tension between the tiny elite patrician class and the lower masses of the plebeians that was the deciding factor in shaping Roman history. Both Greeks and Romans thought that manual labor was fit only for slaves and the lower classes who had to work because they couldn't afford slaves themselves. The wealthy shunned work of any kind. Plutarch reported that Plato was infuriated at two fellow philosophers because they constructed a machine to help solve the problems of geometry. Such a device ought to have been made by a slave or an artisan, not by thinkers and freemen. But that wasn't the end or extent of Plato's outrage. He was also incensed that a machine had been constructed to make geometry practical because it corrupted the excellence of geometry as a thought experiment. In Plato, at least, and his thinking here likely expresses the rest of the Athenian elite, there was utter disdain with and for the everyday world of the common man. The ancient mathematician Archimedes was embarrassed by having constructed devices that aided in his studies of geometry. The first century BC Roman philosopher Cicero said that no gentleman ought to lower himself to engage in daily labor to provide for his needs. He said, quote, Vulgar are the means of livelihood of all hired workmen whom we pay for mere manual labor, and all mechanics are engaged in vulgar trades, unquote. Seneca, who lists the honorable activities for freemen, never even mentions manual labor. In Athens in the first century A.D., one-third of the freemen did nothing more than sit in the city's political assembly halls and discuss issues of state, while slaves performed the work that made the state run. There were five times as many slaves in Athens as citizens. So, if the elite 1% weren't working, what were they doing? They were seeking pleasure that had been purchased by the wealth earned by the lower classes that they so despised. It was into this anti-work cultural environment that the early Christians entered the Greco-Roman world. The value assigned simple work by Christians stemmed from three sources. First, they had Jesus as their example. He grew up in the home of a craftsman. Now, tradition says that Joseph was a carpenter, but the New Testament word was technon and referred to a skilled construction worker. Remember that though Joseph and Mary were from Bethlehem in the south, just a few miles from Jerusalem, they lived up north in Nazareth when Jesus was born. That's where he was raised. Joseph lived in Nazareth because in that day, that's where the work was. Herod was building a new capital for Galilee in the city of Sepphoris, which was a short hike from Nazareth, which in that day was little more than a work camp for the Jewish laborers working on Herod's project. Tour the ruins of Sepphoris today and you come to the conclusion that Joseph 
probably did more work as a mason than as a carpenter. And following custom, Jesus would have learned his father's trade and spent many hours in the quarries and on site shaping stones. He plied this trade until he was 30. Second, the early Christians had another excellent role model in the Apostle Paul, who from his Hebrew heritage had learned a trade, even though his real career was as a rabbi. Paul repeatedly used his tent making as the means of supporting his ministry, so much so that that phrase has come over into our vernacular. Third, early Christians were well aware of Paul's admonition in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10 that, quote, if a man won't work, he shall not eat, unquote. This embrace of work as noble not only set Christians apart from the Greco-Roman culture and enabled them to prosper, their strong work ethic bore fruit, but their increasing prosperity brought them under the eye of Roman officials, wary of the power that wealth inevitably secured. Though Christians used their wealth to better the lives of others, the Romans couldn't help but assume that they were constructing some kind of a secret society that would eventually challenge their control. This became one more reason to be suspicious of and persecute Christians because of their success in business. Another effect the Christian view of work had on Greco-Roman culture was the way it undermined slavery. If work is noble and industry is a virtue, then slaves possess dignity because they do nearly all the work. It was easy for freemen to overlook the suffering of slaves when they were regarded as nothing more than living tools, as the Greeks had called them. But assigning them dignity was dangerous because it ate away at the conscience of freemen. If a slave is a man or a woman and not just a tool, well, it's not right for them to be subjected to such treatment. A man can own a thing, but can he own another man? Well, it was the introduction of Christianity that began the long, slow road toward abolition. In AD 375, church leaders compiled a list of policies regarding what constituted Christian practice. Called the Apostolic Constitutions, they were eight treatises on discipline, worship, and doctrine intended to serve as a manual of guidance for clergy and, to a lesser extent, the laity. In no uncertain terms, based on what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, the Constitution stated, quote, The Lord our God hates the slothful, unquote. The monasteries of the Middle Ages were organized around Christianity's high regard for work. Benedictine monks of the 6th century considered labor an integral and spiritual part of their discipline and did much to increase the prestige of labor and the self-respect of the laborer. All the monastic orders honored work as they tilled the soil, tended herds, milked cows, and created artifacts. Work was also considered an antidote to the sin of laziness. Basil of Caesarea in the 4th century said that, quote, idleness is a great evil. Work preserves us from evil thoughts, unquote. This is where the phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop, originated. In the 12th century, St. Bernard taught, quote, the handmaid of Christ ought always to pray, read, and work, lest the spirit of uncleanness should lead astray the slothful mind. The willful delights of the flesh are overcome by labor, unquote. So strong was the Christian concern in the Middle Ages regarding the willful avoidance of work that the church counted sloth as one of the seven deadly sins. The high value that Christianity assigned manual labor was further bolstered during the Reformation. 
Martin Luther saw work not only as pleasing to the Lord, but as a means by which his glory could be expanded. Work was a calling to serve God. The Latin word vocatio comes over into English as vocation, a divine call to the service of God in whatever form that took. Up to that time, it was believed that the only calling God gave was into the clergy. The idea that he also called farmers and merchants and the rest of the occupations of society was new and novel, and it revolutionized people's view of a career. There was no low status or high status work, good work or bad work. It made no difference what kind of work the Christian did so long as he or she performed it to the glory of God. Work was not an end in itself, but something that someone did in everyday life to the glory of God and to the service of mankind. It was through work, especially the work of Christians, that God maintained and preserved the world and the people in it. Thus, all legitimate work was noble and God-pleasing. Work became a Christian duty. And while the curse of the fall had turned work into toil, the work itself was still noble because even before the fall, God had commanded Adam to tend the garden. He had work to do before sin made that work hard. All of this conspired to produce the Protestant work ethic, which found a society-wide application in the Puritan settlements of Massachusetts and helped launch American prosperity. When in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said that the worker deserves his wages, he paraphrased Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, an Old Testament norm first spoken by Moses when he commanded the Israelites, quote, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, unquote. Just as the ox treading out the grain needs to be rewarded for his work, so too laborers are worthy of the reward of their wages. These biblical references made it mandatory that workers be paid for their efforts. It also underscored once more in the eyes of Christians that work was honorable. It's simply assumed by workers today that they deserve a wage or salary for their services performed. This hasn't always been so. In pagan societies of the ancient world, right up through the era of the early church, the norm was for societies to have the majority of their residents work as slaves. These slaves, who performed all manual labor, received little other than a meager substance allowance. And that was only given so that they'd be able to keep working, not as a reward for their toil. People today ought to appreciate that the current practice of compensating workers and the belief that it's unjust to deprive them of fair compensation wouldn't even be in place were it not for Christianity establishing the norm that a worker deserves his wages. If employers who identify themselves as Christians had faithfully heeded the biblical admonition to pay their workers as they deserved, labor unions might never have needed to come into existence. And unions, some of them being so rapidly anti-Christian in their policies, ought to consider this. The influence of the biblical admonition that the laborer is worthy of his hire lies behind today's institutionalized practice of unions negotiating contracts for their members. If it didn't come from this biblical norm, well, where did it come from? It certainly wasn't present in the Greco-Roman era, where slaves performed nearly all manual labor. Christianity's 2,000-year-long influence is more deeply ingrained and pervasive in Western economic values and practices than is realized by most people. 
Before Christians brought dignity to work and labor, there wasn't much of a middle class in Greek or Roman society. People were either rich or poor, and the poor were commonly slaves. The Christian emphasis on everyone being required to work and work being honorable had the effect of producing a class between the wealthy and the poor. People like Christians, who didn't just live for bread and games, to use Cicero's expression. So the economic phenomenon of a middle class arose, now present in Western societies, but really unknown before the advent of Christianity. The presence of a middle class in Western societies has rightly been credited with greatly reducing the extent of poverty and its inevitable byproduct, disease. It's also been a potent factor in fostering and maintaining political and economic freedom. Sing like now.